Good morning, everybody, and welcome back to the Daily Energy Markets series, kicking off the new season 23-24 this morning with our two stalwarts, Mike Muller, head of Vitol in Asia, and Christoph Ruhl, senior research scholar at the Center on Global Energy Policy at Columbia University, where my son just started, or will start, on Tuesday after the Labor Day weekend. Uh, so welcome, everybody. Welcome back to the podcast. I wanted to kick off, guys, with um, there's our forecast, actually, price forecast from uh, when we broke up in early July two months ago. We asked uh, our network, what will the price of Brent crude oil be when the new season of podcast resumes today? And the answer was closer to 85 at 41 percent. And once again, our collective wisdom seems to be on the money. I want to try today sort of break our conversation into three parts. Uh, start with a reflection on the two months that we have been dark and 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 what are your thoughts uh, take away from that, that what drove it, and then we'll turn to the future. So perhaps uh, Christoph will kick off with you. Your thoughts in the Black Forest over the last two months, uh, what are the takeaways as we witnessed oil prices recover from when we took holidays in the low 70s and when we come back now knocking on the door at 90? Thin trading? <laughs> no, <laughs> in the Black Forest, yeah. I think uh, when you look globally uh, over the last, over this time frame, two, three months, starting with the very big picture, which still dominates, I think, the geopolitical news, the Ukraine situation, this offensive marching much slower than expected, but uh, I would not count it out that there will be a breakthrough. And I think the odds have shifted in favor of this being a more long-term war, uh, not much hope for any peace negotiations. So in terms of looking into the future, this will be something which will be with us. And uh, Russia A bit like Bosnia. We lived with Bosnia in Europe, sadly, for a good five years of my memories, right? No, not like Bosnia, because Bosnia sort of played in the background fiddle and then until right. nobody heard it anymore. This one is Ru Russia's economy is degrading. Russia's army is degrading. I follow this closely. I still have the sense that this offensive may be slower than expected, but is at the end advancing. And so what this means for us is that at some point, Russia will be more in a corner, gradually boxed in a corner, uh, and more in need of money. And this will have impact on their energy policy, and in particular on their oil policy. So the odds of some field, some event from left field, which, you know, disrupting oil markets and bringing prices up, which they would do if they really feel cornered, those odds have slightly increased over the summer. So that would be my takeaway. So first, the, the war shifting not in favor of Russia, but more slowly than expected. And secondly, Russia being cornered and doing dangerous things, the odds of that have increased, taking into account also these coup attempts and all that. Second, on the economy, actually not the very much has happened, but a lot of excitement has developed. And I think the consensus has shifted a little bit towards the Fed being either there already or more really consensus very close to one more rate hike. Uh, in November or in, in January, and then they will be done with it. And on the back of that, the markets were thin trading, but nevertheless have, have improved markedly. There, I would be very cautious. I do think that uh, we have a huge role of energy on inflation. And I think the uh, 
gasoline prices going up already and then being pushed up higher by crude prices in the immediate future will feed back to an increase in inflation rates at some point over the winter. And that will revive the entire debate on what the Fed should or should not be doing. So uh, it looks like de-escalation on the interest rate fronts, but I would expect at least one more big uh, discussion there with all, you know, the, we, we know that the pattern runs right, right now. And then on, uh, on energy, I think uh, oil is pretty clear now. Saudi Arabia sticking to its program of bringing prices up. Russia having realized and probably calculated on the back of an envelope that uh, 500 uh, and maybe another 500,000 barrel cut and a $10 increase in prices is good for them and not bad in terms of revenues. And also bringing up the price, the actual price above the price cap is bad for the US and their reputation of their policies. And so uh, I would expect oil prices going up and then rising gas prices having an impact on inflation and that whole debate reviving and feeding into the interest rate debate. The other big cornerstone of the global economy with two of them, China, I remain very skeptical on China's ability to, to revive that economy short of a massive support program. China is not managing this transition from, from uh, industrialization to services very well. That has a lot to do with service, sophisticated service economy built up requiring uh, decentralized decision-making and, and some liberty for action, which the current government is not providing, which has an instinct very strong for centralization and authorization. And so the overall growth rates will continue to decelerate in these little bushfires here and there, the zombie banks, the municipal municipality debt, the, the uh, housing market, the, the, the construction sector, they will keep on erupting until it is dosed with a rather large uh, swell of, of stimulus, and that would have to be a monetary stimulus. That's the other uh, characteristic which almost everyone in oil markets got wrong. The supposed bounce back from COVID did not happen simply because during the lockdown period, the transfers which we saw in Europe and in the US did not happen. So there wasn't that kind of money in the consumer hands. But when they have to rectify the situation, they're more likely to turn to that angle, giving money to transfers to, to consumers for spending, rather than going the old road of building more bridges and roads to nowhere, which are, which are then you know, not, not being productive in the long term. Well, that's so, probably a, a good place to, to bring Mike in. And, and uh, you know, obviously, if you uh, take away from, from the summer drumbeat of, 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 of news and otherwise, Mike, certainly China's continuous presence in the headlines was always somewhat bearish. There didn't, and yet imports held up. Your thoughts and takeaways from the summer, Mike Muller, head of Vitol in Asia. Christian, you've you've packed so much content into what you said. I'm going to run the risk of repeating some of it. The editors will be in. Don't worry. Try. I'll try and be be additive here. I mean, obviously, yeah. it's been been marred by adverse and extreme weather reports. We are seeing a more severe typhoon season here in the in the Western Pacific uh, than in the Atlantic. Although there was that, uh, that that very unusual hurricane that went into California, and the other one, of course, that went into the into the uh, Panhandle of, of Florida. Um, we have seen $12 added to the price of Brent crude since the end of June until the end of August. So that's in two months, $12.5 and another nearly $2 on top of that in uh, in price action Friday. Um, so we finished the season, as you call it, in the mid 70s, and we're now in the high 80s. And some would say that constitutes a breakout. Um, you then look at reasons why the market's gone higher and reflect on what that means. I mean, very clearly, the removal from the market of the 
perceived excess supply by OPEC plus, uh, led of course by Saudi's voluntary cuts, whom some refer to as the lollipop, um, has uh, taken oil off the market and it's begun, it's taken a few weeks or months even to, to see any data to underpin that, but there's definitely been a noticeable um, removal of inventory on the water, um, on, on the crude side of things. That's been coupled with a summer where we've seen with hindsight perhaps should have made logical sense, which is reliability of the refining segment has been uh, confirmed to be on more shaky ground perhaps than than most predicted that to be. And given the absolutely stellar refiner margins last year, it's understandable that many refineries just kept running and postponed their maintenance from last year to this year. And in many cases, these refineries are 50, 60 years old and uh, you run the risk of, uh, of unforeseen um, fatigue of, of instrumentation, of equipment, of hydraulics and stuff that therefore causes refineries to be uh, to give, giving the market less uptime. The refineries, of course, are just the middlemen in the process, right? They, they decide the ebb and flow of whether a removal of crude oil from OPEC plus results in a tight crude market or a tight product market. So these refinery problems are referred to resulted in a surprisingly to most tight uh, market in that all important product, which is distillates, which of course um, matters in a big way in things like uh, Chinese construction sector. Um, but I think it is fair to say that demand overall glo uh, globally um, has, uh, has worked hand in hand with the removal of crude oil supply to give us a fundamentally tighter market now. And I'm not offering an opinion here. I need to be awfully careful as we're on the cusp of APEC and uh, everyone's going to take away comments and lend a lot of weight to them. But uh, if you just look at the facts in the market, and if you look at the front Brent spread, for example, so month two versus month five is sitting at about $2 a barrel for three months worth of spreads, 60, 70 cents a barrel a month. That, that normally tells you that there's a perceived uh, risk premium or perceived tightness in the front end of the market because supply has been removed or demand is surprising to the upside. So, Sean, maybe I'll stop short there. I've, I've well, let me just come back on, on one of the points you made there, Mike, vis-a-vis -vis China. The headlines through China uh, from the, the second quarter through the summer were always somewhat bearish, uh, struggling with the uh, challenge of the real estate crisis, uh, uh, the service, uh, the spending. But yet oil consumption, oil imports remained very robust through the second quarter, June, uh, came off a little bit uh, over the summer. But ultimately, consumption in China remains quite solid, despite the headlines of negative macro numbers. Yes, Sean, I mean, China really does uh, sit front and center in terms of debates on, on demand, and it does divide opinion. And I'm going to go out of my way here not to offer a firm opinion and just to sort of observe on the various factors we're seeing. But there are, there are several. I mean, the market continues to see headlines of the Chinese construction sector um, being a sick patient and requiring underpinning and support from, from government. Um, the construction sector is responsible for a lot of energy demand, but it is not the only sector that consumes energy. Um, we have indeed seen imports, imports of crude, um, imports of coal, uh, notably those two energy products, not too much else. Um, but also petrochemical feedstocks, naphtha, and particularly LPG into China exceed expectations. But we have to remind ourselves that it's off a very, very low baseline. Uh, and meanwhile, manufacturing has been month on month on a declining levels. Yes, the, the Kaising Index or the PMI for China has continued to come in at below 50, which, which signals a, 
a sector that is not buoyant and not expanding. Absolutely. Um, however, the overall demand growth year on year China, I'll just repeat what I said before, is, is off a baseline comparing to a COVID year. 2022 is a COVID year. Price is also very important in China. China is quite price sensitive. This time a year ago, um, I just took a note here. We we had a market price that was uh, on the 2nd of September last year, $94 a barrel. Um, so, yes, uh, China was not in peak demand mode because it had COVID issues and the oil price was a lot higher. Um, then the next thing, of course, is that you've got a surge in the sectors in Chinese demand that are not linked to the construction sector. You've had a huge extra capacity being brought on in the petrochemical markets, which hasn't done much good for petrochemical margins, but it has seen China consume more than their fair share last year of LPG and naphtha this year. Um, Chinese coal imports are absolutely uh, absolutely high, uh, much, much higher than last year around. And therefore, as an economy, we mustn't forget, people talk a lot about the Chinese stagnating demographic, one-child policy, has urbanization peaked, have they built all the highways they needed to build? Um, but the Chinese economy, even in slow growth, is still growing. And if it's not growing in construction, it's growing in services and it's growing in sectors like petrochemicals, where China is no longer importing uh, advanced uh, products made in neighboring countries, such as Korea, but making the stuff itself. Christoph, if we look forward now, uh, uh, looking at the coming period, coming out of the summer and just as of Friday, the uh, indications of data coming out of the US that the, you know the, the, the tightening cycle may may need may be over the uh, the soft the sort of Goldilocks soft landing of the world's biggest economy. Do you buy into that? How do you see that playing out going forward in the coming months? Just one footnote on China. Please. Also, you know, it's what Mike said. It's from a very low base. Then the energy imports like coal is always because of the high gas prices, of course, and substitution. And then the, the, the crucial point here is that we don't know about the inventory numbers, really. And uh, by all accounts, inventories are brimming. So we should expect you know, them to be clever enough to engage in refilling inventories as long as Russian oil was cheap, filling it to the head and then being ready for whatever comes, but not at the current demand growth. And so uh, on the... On the US, I think uh, there is the chance of, of, of a soft landing, but uh, I would not, I mean, even a soft landing, <laughs> staying with the analogy, would be sort of a very rocky plane right downwards. So I would definitely expect the discussion of inflation to return if the oil price increases, feeds into gasoline prices, which it will. Uh, and I have diesel. to see if I get the, num yeah, get the numbers right. Year on year, there was, uh, I think, inflation went down from 9 in 22 to 3% by 6 percentage points, four of which, as a friend of mine calculated, of the headline number, four of these six percentage points decrease in inflation over a year are the result of lower gasoline prices feeding into the CPI, the consumer basket. And so if you have now an increase in, in, in crude prices and then in gasoline prices again, then uh, you would see this return of this discussion. Uh, but generally, I think the worry is not so much with the US because like like Germany now, which officially has been confirmed to be shrinking, this is still an economy with very, very high activity levels. So unemployment is very low, uh, output is very high, people who are desperately looking for a job is, is not visible, housing prices are going up. So this is the kind of recession everybody dreams about. And, it is quite uh, amazing, Christoph, that the US, I mean, in return of surprises this year, 
that the, the, the China was to be the growth story, U.S. was to go into recession is, in essence, putting aside the recession word, but essentially they've reversed roles and, and the U.S. remains in a way the, the big pillar to the global oil market. Are we risk of losing that as well as, as China? We have a very strong correlation so between the U.S. and the, and the Chinese inflation rates, and that, that comes through this still existing trend uh, uh, connections on the on the supply and demand side. They're still integrated very much more than, than than some politicians would like. In the U.S., I think there is a very very small chance of a big crash. We should never forget that monetary policy, as we all know, operates with very long and variable and unpredictable lags. So some of the basic reaction to this increase in interest rates may still be out there, but it doesn't look to me at all if we are in a crash scenario. We are sort of in this kind of semantic discussion whether this is a recession or not, but for all intents and purposes, and for those who buy oil and gas and other energies, uh, it doesn't really feel like doomsday, and, uh, and so the demand uh, should hold up quite well. What is also interesting is you know, the, the efficiency improvement on the supply side. A lot of people focus on the decline in the rig count in the US in oil and in gas. But uh, at the same time as the rig count declined, production went up. So there are big productivity improvements, which would mean that even if the system tanks a little bit and energy prices come down, that production in the US is likely to be less elastic to rea reacting to a decline in economic activity than we are used to because they have more headroom. So all of that uh, points to me to a pretty stable situation, not really threatened either from interest rates or from oil prices, even though there may be this little cycle, higher oil prices, higher gasoline prices, higher inflation rates, more discussion of interest rate increases and maybe one or two more rate hikes. The economy seems to be able to stomach that quite well so far. Mike, just picking up again on, on our earlier points and looking forward, as we sit on the eve of APEC you referenced earlier, the headline in today's Financial Times over the weekend is about the China economic slowdown reverberating across Asia with uh, Korea manufacturing seeing you know new you know very low from a historical context uh, Vietnam a lot of slowdown across the major manufacturing economies in Asia your thoughts on the outlook for the coming months where that uh, that demand supply balance is going uh, going into the winter Yes, I think I hinted at it in petrochemicals. I mean, China is building capacity, which is making petrochemicals over capacity a reality in many parts of Asia, and therefore calling into questions the economics of, of many of these plants running at viable levels, which even on maximum turndown, an olefins plant, an ethylene cracker tends to need to run at 60, 70% to make on-spec on -spec products. So the, the concerns over China continue to dominate discussions here. I mean, that said, if you want to build a ship anywhere, including China, China is obviously taking a lot of shipbuilding orders off other uh, more high cost uh, uh, industrialized countries over the past few decades. Uh, the order books are full, right? Um, so, I mean, just to underline some of what I was saying, the year on year demand, year on year oil demand uh, on a year to date basis uh, projected forward to the rest of this year for 2023 has China consuming something like 1.2, 1.3 million barrels a day more oil than last year. Of which about a third in is 24. Yet. No, in 23 versus 22. 23. Right? Okay. Right. But so again, as you said, last year was a COVID year. So it's from a low number. I've given you the COVID number. The jet fuel is about a third of oh, it. Oh, jet so fuel. Sorry. Okay. 100, right. Uh, more than half of the rest is petrochemicals, LPG and naphtha. 
But then there is a, a good slug of gasoline in there as well for a country that's known to be selling electric vehicles pretty fast. And there was a price war of auto manufacturers for market share in the domestic automotive, automotive sector. Gasoline demand has gone up a lot in China this year. This last year. That's also a COVID factor, of course. But there's also been growth in diesel, which is the one that should be most hit by construction. So if you're up at 1.3 million barrels a day plus, uh, as Christoph hinted, um, it would appear that a lot of the stock draw of oil on the water, high sulfur crude notably, has also gone into China. Is China replenishing or is China building inventory? It obviously has a, a world significant strategic petroleum reserve these days. But what does China consider the normal baseline? And at what price do they hold inventory? Um, and of course, the final thing to take into account, which just hit the headlines um, on, on Friday, was the market is still regulated in terms of quotas being granted by central government for exports. So we have to bear in mind that China last year, in the first six, seven months of the year, hardly exported any diesel. It then got a directive to export a lot faster. And in Q4 and early Q1, China exported record amounts of diesel, 2 million tons a month. This completely um, weakened the, the global balance for, for diesel. And they've just um, approved then, another uh, third round of quotas for exporting of distillates, haven't they? Yeah, yeah. I was one step away from saying that. So, <laughs> okay, so went to what you consider normal balance levels. And the quotas they've issued are very much in line with expectations in the market, which is that, you know, regular levels to continue. So on a year-on-year -year basis, China has exported a lot more product into a market this year than last year. And despite that, the market has tightened. Now the amount of export quota that allows China to put diesel, jet fuel, and gasoline into the market for the balance of this year is at much lower levels than was the case for October, November, December last year by a factor of maybe half. So China will not be the breadbasket of, of the Asian product supply demand balance, as was the case last year. Uh, bread box is a silly word, but the, the, a significant supply source in the way it was Q4 last year at the very time of year when Asian demand grows for reasons of, you know, kerosene for, for heating in, in Japan, Korea, uh, but also seasonal up, up, upswings. Yes. I mean, as, as, a, as a China bull, Mike, do you, do you feel challenged? Are, are, is the China weakness in, in this year is it is there a, a, a have we reached the floor of that it could it get worse i mean this real estate crisis uh does seem to be you know they're putting as many plasters on it as they can but how long could you keep your finger in the dam you know whatever analogy you want they they, they the chinese seem to be unable to create stimulus they can't pump money into the system because ultimately that could result in making the problem worse if you pay credit easy and, and, and cheaper and more available. So I'm just wondering your outlook for that sort of recover that China recovery. Is it in the sense it could get worse before it gets better? Your thoughts on, on that sort of horizon for months to the end of the year, for example? It's very hard to offer opinion there, Sean. I mean, uh, the Chinese government uh, is, I mean, there, there is a wide array of views on, on what the government's priorities are going forward. Uh, this time last year, or coming into Q4, it was restoring growth. It seemed the trade balance was important. We're hearing that, um, that oil price is important, and one assumes that China buys less as we move up to 90 or above $90 a barrel type levels. Um, in terms of reinvigorating the ailing sector, that construction sector, cement, construction, timber, haulage, copper, the lot, right? Steel mills. 
it, it, it requires a stimulus package and a government intervention that's going to take much, much longer than... I mean, I just can't see it. I mean, they've 60 to 90 million empty apartments floating around China, depending what the data point, but obviously a huge number. Building more just seems to be adding to the challenge. But let's think uh, as we go into our final segment about the immediate future, whether it be APEC this week, what are the talking points, whether it be the month of September. I just wanted to get Christoph and Mike to think in the more immediate future uh, as we start the sort of normal season, if you like, back to school starts and everything else. The U.S. comes out of Labor Day weekend uh, on Tuesday. What's the immediate things on the horizon? Let's take the survey question before we dig into that. Uh, and that is the question for the end of the year. Will our collective brains get this one right as we did over the summer? What will be the price of Brent crude oil at end of 23? Closer to 95 or plus above, closer to 90, closer to 85, closer to 80 and below. Uh, where do you think the end of this year goes? Even as Mike says, we're going into the, P, the sort of demand uh, peak period of the year in, in Asia uh, uh, where does that impact? We're already at uh, knocking on the door in Asia, of 90. Not the West, right? In the West, the demand in the US driving season is the peak demand, right? Exactly, yeah. But Asia uh, is the is the pickup. Um, where does it go for the end of the year? Um, it's a tough one, actually. You would think... You've only given two choices it, here. Yeah. <laughs> well, I took away 75 because Zoom doesn't allow five choices. Um, Christoph, the immediate sense of September uh, geopolitics, are they going to, to be a big factor? I mean, one of the stories that's been bubbling away in the background over the summer, which is quite a phenomenal one, if it was to see the light of day, a deal between Israel and Saudi Arabia uh, that would involve, apparently, a security guarantee from the U.S., uh, a treaty guarantee in the same way that the U.S. has with Europe. What do you think of the immediate outlook and, and, and where geopolitics fits into that over the coming few weeks? Remember September. I think uh, starting on the big picture, China is uh, it's hard. It's not hard to offer opinions, hard to get it right. But we are observed will continue. They will try to fix things here and there, and they will always be a step too late because they don't have what the fundamental problem we have observing, they don't have the guts to implement a master plan of further liberalization. So they will run after the individual fires. And on the US side, we will, uh, we will see sort of, I think more buoyant expectations right now. So the immediate outlook to me looks quite bullish as people come back and expect that the US or see that the US is not crashing. They see that China at least reacts with a delay. Uh, I would see uh, I would see markets which you are interested in going up rather than going down. That is the immediate outlook for the next four weeks or so. Then you know things, as I said earlier, may turn around again. Uh, on the Middle East deal, I think that would be a very very good thing if we had this kind of agreement. And the big question in terms of oil market is what does that do to the sanctions on Iran, and what does that do to politically the attempts by Saudi Arabia to get an even bigger deal by integrating Iran to some extent as well. I think what the Saudis, rightly so, if, if I understand it right, what they really would like to do is to pacify the entire region and then to concentrate on economic competition. That means to have this pact with Israel backed by the US that would give them a free hand to maneuver with China much more to their liking without uh, having 
to fight the US all the time and also to get the wildcard Iran off their back in both oil policy and normal policy by continuing what they have done, normalizing relations and then turn that into normal commercial relations. The odds for that look surprisingly well. Uh, and if it has to, if it can be done, it has to be done fast because this is nothing which can happen right before the US elections. It has to happen basically now and in the first half of 2024. Yeah, the window for, window for big ideas is closing in terms of even interest rate rises. The Fed will want to get off the stage before the big noise of the election kicks off. Mike, if it wasn't happening next week, i.e. APEC, you would probably want it to be happening in the sense of uh, the biggest gathering of, 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 of the oil trading universe in Singapore uh, at, at this po- moment in time, trying to get a temperature on the scale of the China uh, issue and the scale of the the the, the sort of uh, ramifications for all of Asia. Uh, your thoughts going into APEC week, what do you think will be the big talking points in the social circles? It's probably the best attended APEC um, that we've seen in a long time. So it is busy. I've never seen as many line items of meetings on an agenda as I, as I have on my plate this year. Um, I think people will be talking a lot about the financials. I mean, a lot of uh, the the most brilliant minds in the industry, uh, present company accepted, Christoph, uh, are here, in fact, uh, having weekend meetings and are discussing this very thing. I mean, open interest is important. You're going to have a lot of people here, but you you have seen a, a inflow of spec money um, or non-commercials, as the American exchanges refer to them, um, still historically at the lower end of the range, but it has been a very material inflow. And that was very much in response to the removal of OPEC plus production, and in particular by 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 Saudi Arabia. Um, but that now seems to have handed the baton over a little bit, thanks to some of the refinery dynamics I explained before, um, to a more fundamentally um, driven rally, which is manifesting itself in these backwardations, be it in crude, be it in refined products. I didn't talk about the numbers in distillate and gasoline, but they've been quite exceptional. Um, there has not been an active hurricane season to mess with markets. Now, storms can be positive and negative for demand. Um, but uh, there does seem to be a feeling right now that there's a backwardation that's there for, for strong fundamental reasons. Um, we didn't touch much on Russia, but all eyes this week will be on OPEC+. Plus. It is the time of month when uh, nominations are due, but OSP's official selling prices get released. And it's also the time of month when the um, monitoring committees get together and decide on uh, on, or, or, or on whether to extend uh, voluntary cuts or, or do any any tweaks to the balances. Well, all the Price reporting is the expectation that the Saudis will announce that this week that they will roll into October for with the one million cut. I think they have the option to. I'm not sure what's in the price. Um, I think many people are expecting them to roll again. Um, there are some people saying to me that uh, the refinery maintenance period is not exempt in Russia. Russia has many refineries down also, so it might be quite easy for them to put forward a a crude output cut, literally oil staying in the ground for the uh, autumn month of September also, uh, which could, on top of any Saudi extension, uh, be perceived as as an extra boost and has the potential to keep prices uh, underpinned here in the high 80s. So difficult to say how much is in the price already, Sean. Yes, yeah. Christoph. So now just a, I should not underestimate the possibility that the Saudis have gone ahead and they have incurred the cost of the initial cuts. They may well say now, okay, we, we don't stop, but we half it. 
and the other half is going to be carried by Russia going forward. For some of the reasons Mike mentioned, would be easy for Russia to do. So the, this is not a done deal that they just seamlessly extended. The uh, yeah. Mike, go ahead. Just closing thoughts there. Any other talking yeah, points you think? It's very, it's very difficult to imagine how the price gap continues to to uh, to remain in force. With um, I mean, differentials in Asia for Russian Pacific crews, which don't always get the headlines. It's normally about Urals in the West. Uh, are very. I mean, there are discounted. increasing mutterings around that that it has to get a lot more robust. Yes, markets are efficient. They're not level <laughs> playing fields, but they're, they're efficient. Yes, uh, and it does feel like that might also be a talking point this week uh, in terms of APEC. You know, does the, the does the G seven roll the dice again on the um, on the price? But I, with with the U.S. election now starting to creep into play, that every decision vis a vis. The Biden and the administration there will be through the prism of what does it mean for the election? Do you go hard on Russia or do you be perceived to go more hard on Russia or not, etc.? Listen, there's no shortage of things to talk about. And the first session of, of, of the season tells us indeed that um, uh, we will have a lot to discuss. I myself, one of the lesser minds of the industry, won't be in uh, APEC at all this week because we ourselves are, of course, preparing for our big gathering in a month's time. And Adipec this year is very early. So a lot to be getting on with here in the Gulf. But listen, Mike Muller, have a great week. Say hello to everybody for us. We'll be here every morning at 10.30. And Christoph Rule, look forward to seeing you both soon. Thank you so much for being the pioneers to kick this season off. Really appreciate it as always. Great insights.